was going to say, the thing about Seventh-day Adventists is that they're the kind of, like, small Protestant denomination that makes other small prominent de- Protestant denominations not really know what to say. But I, I feel like nobody actually knows what it is that they believe. Really, they should take advantage of this and just see what they what people will fucking buy. If I belonged to a small religious denomination that wasn't well-known, I would just make shit up. Oh, all the time. I would just... just... <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm often tempted, like, it's like I've always kind of wanted to be a cult leader, but, like, I've been told that that's an inappropriate goal. Like, I just, I kind of want to make up my own religion, just one that sounds roughly right, and then just, like, give people the most bizarre reasons why I can't come to their Christmas party. I mean, like, I would believe probably anything that a Seventh-day Adventist told me about their religion. If they were like, you know what, our entire religion is based off of eating chocolates out of a tiny advent calendar that's counting down to the apocalypse i would buy it yeah that's closer that's closer than it honestly should be <laughs> I, I, I prefer i prefer like you know like banning plastic one stra- use plastic straws is a form of religious oppression because my religion bans the use of glassware <laughs> it's just paper mcdonald's that's, that's... cups or hell those are the choices <laughs> <laughs> if it's not wax coated it's it's against the good lord <laughs> oui, now in the uh, towers of uh Edmonton. i'm not a tory i don't speak on both sides i do not use crack cocaine nor am i an addict of crack cocaine Welcome back to Fat, French, and Fabulous. I'm Jessica. And I'm Janelle, accompanied by a devastated Bianca. Yeah. Because I have a tendency to just leave my laundry on the floor because I live in an apartment the size of a phone booth, and I don't really have anywhere else to put it. And so for like two weeks now, she's just been comfortably sleeping on my dirty laundry, and then before recording this episode, I did all the laundry. So I've shaken her entire world. She no longer has anywhere to sleep. She's been very upset. At one point, she Bianca just started howling. She is homeless. I mean, like, I have a perfectly comfortable bed full of blankets and toys and pillows. And all she wants to do is just sleep sadly with her head on my fucking desk leg. Yeah, the, the, the mere fact that she's no longer allowed to sleep in your dirty underpants is a devastation. It is a blow. There, there are no dirty underpants. <laughs> I've rocked her world. She literally just started howling today princess. for no apparent reason when she realized that her, like, dirty underwear bed was no longer available. I didn't understand that chihuahuas could howl, but apparently they can. And it's terrifying. <laughs> it sounds like a is guinea adorable? pig trying turning into a werewolf. Haunting. That's what it sounds like. <laughs> It's, it's like a very small chupacabra. <laughs> if I shut the door on her, it just kind of sounds like an electronic device in the house is malfunctioning. <laughs> like, it like sounds like, like the fan. There's a slight whine on my AC fan. Yeah, she sounds like an overheating laptop. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a very hard day for her. Uh, very devastating day. Devastating day. Uh, also, also, good friends and listeners who I'm not allowed to call fatties... Uh, it's a week after my birthday, so happy belated my birthday. <laughs> happy belated birthday to both of us, actually. Yeah. We're both, uh... We both are slightly older than the last time you heard us. Because, again, we're the same person. Identical. Separated only by time, distance, and species. 
and occasionally sanity. Yeah, we're both we're both born in early September. I went to a terrifying dive bar that's not like a normal bar designed to look like a dive bar to attract hipsters. It's just genuinely a terrifying hole in the wall underneath me. Uh, you enter through the back door because the front door is condemned for some reason. Oh, oh Beer good. costs $2.50 and there is incredibly racist signage on the wall. So that's <laughs> that's kind of fun. That is That is like a classic dive bar. Yeah, there's a sign over the bar that says... No, we do not serve alcohol to Indians after dark. And if you ask the bartender, like, why there's a hate crime on the wall, she just kind of shrugs. So, that was my birthday. And then I bullied an innocent 20-year-old into doing hookah. So, it was good. Corruption. Corrupting young children is all that I really want in this mm, life. I didn't and even as- go outside for my birthday. It was a present to myself. I didn't say <laughs> hi to another human being. <laughs> I just quietly ate soup in the dark and <laughs> contemplated my mortality. Oh, yeah. And the inventor of cornflakes, which, funnily enough, is today's topic. Excellent. We have been waiting to do this topic since so the long. podcast got started. So long. This was one of the... Yeah. One of the first ideas that Janelle mentioned was John Harvey Kellogg the inventor of cornflakes? Because he's so much crazier than anybody recognizes. Like, I think it's kind of made the rounds of, like, interesting internet articles that, like, John Harvey Kellogg invented cornflakes to try to prevent people from masturbating. I Maybe I'm dramatically overestimating how well-known of a fact that is, but I feel like most people have at least heard that. Yeah. Like, this is, this is one of those, like, more generally passed around fun facts about the inventor of, of cornflakes. Um, is that he, he first invented cornflakes to stop people from uh, uh, freeing Willie. Uh, he was, he was very worried about the, the, the corrupting influence of the low five. Is, is this going to be an entire hour of you doing terrible analogies for masturbation? Um, I don't know if it's going to be an hour. It might be a bit longer, but yes. Yes, it is. I have an irresponsible number of masturbation euphemisms, and they're going to come at you fast. My dog is crying. (laughs) That's not even a joke that I'm making. My dog just started crying in her sleep. Sorry, I thought that was your laptop again. (laughs) Well, this is going to be a lot. So, So, John Harvey Kellogg, born 1852. It's a good year. <laughs> a good year. A fine vintage. A fine year. Kellogg was a doctor and health reformer who was also, as you may guess, the creator of Cornflakes breakfast cereal. Dr. Kellogg was a major leader of the clean living movement of the American progressive era, which was a wave of social reformers that promoted healthy diet, stricter standards for food safety, temperance, disease prevention, and public sanitation. Kellogg- I was going to say, like, this is this is healthy living, not in the, like, protein shakes and yeah. yoga pants on Instagram movement. This is, like, clean living when they still don't totally understand germ theory. So some of it is nuts. Yeah, some of it is nuts. Uh, Kellogg himself was a vegetarian, an early proponent of germ theory, of, of the germ theory or theory of disease, and a prolific health and science writer. He was likewise hmm. a highly eccentric personality. Many found him a difficult man, but likewise magnetic. He was five foot four, dressed entirely in white, and wore a sumptuous white beard and mustache. I was going to say his his eccentricity is the only reason we're doing an episode on him because yes. 
a vegetarian who thought that we should have less poo in the street is not particularly interesting. No. Or on brand for this podcast. <laughs> it's a little it's a little off brand. Like, you know, you might be thinking like, wow, he sounds like a pretty swell guy. So how the heck did he end up on this podcast, which might as well be renamed the world's most horrifying variety hour. We're going to get to that. With enemas. Lots and lots, <laughs> lots of, of enemas. <laughs> so many enemas. Right up the butt. Uh, Kellogg ran a sanitarium, <laughs> a sort of health spa slash resort slash research facility that emphasized holistic health, nutrition, exercise, and abstaining from drinking and smoking, among other things. But likewise, innovated and popularized improved surgical procedures and sterile operating environments. Among the successes of the clean living movement, we can count consumer protection laws that banned adulterated, mislabeled, and tainted food, as well as regulating narcotics. Likewise, many okay, early yeah. anti-smoking ordinances, anti-prostitution laws, and the 18th Amendment, that is, the prohibition of alcohol, came due to the efforts of clean living advocates, leaving a somewhat mixed legacy. While I doubt many would argue against the good sense of preventing the sale of spoilt meat and no longer fumigating every school, hospital, and daycare with cancer, prohibition of alcohol resulted in a massive explosion of organized crime, supplying an unregulated product that was often unsafe. I mean, I'm kind of glad that, like, getting a prescription is no longer just pill roulette, like you're at a high school party reaching into a bowl. But, you know, right? Like, yay, no more arsenic and baby formula, but also... Oh, Al Capone. Oh, no. <laughs> a further flaw in the legacy of the clean living movement came from its rhetorical and philosophical emphasis on purity and the degree to which actual science mixed freely with pseudoscientific nonsense. Actual science is hot, vapid sister. Mm, I feel like purity is one of those, like buzzwords that just it's it's just a red flag it's very low it's up there with the word cleansing for you know if, if you hear these kinds of we're, we're gonna promote purity and cleansing you are in a cult and genocide is coming the best case scenario is that you get together and stab shannon tate that is that's literally the best case scenario that is the best case scenario the worst, worst case, case scenario third reich you don't want to think about it <laughs> absolutely you're going to start, it's a matter of time before you start saying weird stuff about Jewish people. It's, it's basically six, uh, six degrees of anti-Semitism. It's coming. You can just start a timer. Concern for health and wellness were often conflated with a puritanical moral impulse. Sympathy for the poor and the ill mingled with a certain level of disgust and contempt for people outside the movement and the way they chose to live. Anti-prostitution laws were equally motivated by moralistic anti-sex sentiments as they were concerns about disease transmission and often forwarded certain misogynistic double standards that harshly punished poor women who had few better options other than engaging in sex work. A practice that continues to this day. Similarly, anti-drug laws championed by the movement were often explicitly racial in character, with the threat of drug-crazed ethnic minorities used to incite fear and gin up support. Many prominent clean-life advocates were likewise proponents of eugenics who supported racial hygiene, fearing the mixing of the races and the consequent moral degeneracy that would, of course, inevitably result. Uh... Kellogg, far from being an exception to these kind of views, led a life that was in many ways a microcosm of the movement and its contradictions as a whole. Uh, Kellogg grew up in Battle Creek, Michigan, then the beating heart of the Seventh-day Adventist movement. 
Oh, and boy. if you're not familiar with the Seventh-day Adventists, <laughs> they're a large American-born Protestant Christian denomination that grew out of the Millerite movement, the followers of William Miller, a Baptist teacher who taught his followers that Jesus would return to Earth on October 22nd, 1844, marking the beginning of the end of the world. Essentially, a doomsday cult. That is a doomsday cult that is real wrong. They would be so disappointed to learn that it is 2018 and there has been very little rapturing up until this point. Almost no rapturing. Almost none. Almost none. I mean, I go home for Christmas, but like, <laughs> that's the end of the rapturing. Uh, after October 22nd, see, the disappointment came a little bit sooner than you might think. After October 22nd, 1844 came and went, and the big man didn't show, known as the Great Disappointment... <laughs> Miller's followers were left shaken and untethered. They continued as a, on as a religious community that observed the Sabbath on Saturday like Jewish people do, rather than on Sunday like most Christians, and taught a flavor of Christian belief that centers preparing for the second coming of Christ through a life of purity. See, this is why most doomsday cults don't usually have a specific date. They just just It gets awkward. I wonder how many times you can reschedule the apocalypse before people stop buying into your shit. Because it's got to become soon enough... That, like, it's going to affect yeah. your life. Because if I find out the world's going to end when I'm 97, I don't actually give a shit, is the thing. I don't care. It's fine. I'm going to live my life the way I would have anyway, and then I'm going to go out flipping both middle fingers to the descending Jesus as I just rocket down a fucking mountain on a snowboard. <laughs> that's that's pretty much my end of the world plan. Yeah, that's that's the plan. But if like the apocalypse is going to affect whether or not I should like go to grad school, I'm going to start, you know... I need more information. Yeah, it's going to change your decisions. Uh, Kellogg, Kellogg grew up a devout Seventh-day Adventist. His early formal education was spotty, presumably because you don't need book learning when the end of the world is coming any day now. Yeah. But likewise because he was initially a quite a sickly but child, suffering myriad digestive problems. Uh, he was destined for far more than just so sorting brooms at the family broom factory, and at the age of 12, he caught the attention of Ellen and James White, two of the founders of the Seventh-day Adventist movement and the proprietors of a, of a prominent Seventh-day Adventist publisher located in Battle Creek. <laughs> I'm sorry, but like, sorting brooms at the family broom factory just sounds like a Charles Dickens bad childhood. <laughs> sounds fake it's a stereotypical that sounds more fake terrible childhood for like a fake London that orphan. sounds more fake than any explanation of seventh day adventism you could tell me <laughs> you could tell me that seventh day adventists believe that god is a small lop-eared rabbit who is currently a class pet in a small class in minnesota for a bunch of sixth graders and i would believe that more readily than I would believe he grew up sorting brooms at the family broom factory. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, Kellogg became a protege of the Whites and worked as an apprentice at their publishing house. He eventually came to be editor of their magazine, The Health Reformer, a name that he changed to Good Health on the grounds that while people wanted to be healthy, they didn't much want to be told they needed to reform. None of this reform nonsense. None of this, no, I don't, I don't want to, like, have to, like, reform my behavior. I just want to, like, be able to poop without crying. <laughs> Again, true to this day. <laughs> I just, I just don't want to have to, like, stop halfway up the stairs to catch my breath. <laughs> I don't want to be told that I need to change. <laughs> Ellen Gould White, nay Harmon, 
was herself a fascinating historical character. She was a massively prolific writer with over 40 books and 5,000 articles produced within her lifetime, and, a hugely, and hugely influential on topics such as agriculture, education, health, nutrition, religion, and Holy social shit. justice. She is, to this day, an extremely important contributor to, the, to Adventist theology and the most translated female nonfiction writer. She was and is a figure of some controversy due to the fact that she claimed that much of her inspir- uh, much of the inspiration for her work was divine in origin, as she had the power of prophecy, manifesting as a series of over a hundred visions. I mean, it was hard to be taken seriously as a woman back in the day. Sometimes you just you gotta have literal God, I guess. F- fuck you! I have visions. <laughs> <laughs> Visions told me what we need to do. That's why. <laughs> it's not just my my woman brain telling me this. It is literally God. You, and God is a man, and you can trust men. Trust me, a man told me. An invisible man that you don't know and cannot see and cannot clarify this with. Thanks. God is my chaperone. <laughs> While Kellogg originally aspired to be a teacher, the Whites, alongside his parents, convinced him to pursue medicine. Kellogg graduated with a degree as a medical doctor in 1875 from the New York University Medical College at Bellevue. His tuition paid by a $1,000 loan from the Whites. (laughs) It hurts to be alive. Uh, Afterwards, he would be called once more to Battle Creek, but it is during this time that he developed his anxieties around the transmission of sexual diseases as he was called upon to treat many syphilis sufferers. Was he having a lot of sex with people who had syphilis? There's there's always been a foolproof way to avoid sexually transmitted diseases. I'm no doctor, but you can also, you can just not have sex with people. Yeah, he took that right up. Um, the Western Health Reform Institute had originally been founded by the Whites in 1866, based on the visions of Ellen White as a healing center based on Seventh-day Adventist principles. By 1876, however, the Institute was struggling and the newly minted Dr. Kellogg took over management at the White's request. J.H. Kellogg made significant changes to the Institute, renaming it the Battle Creek Medical Surgical Sanitarium, expanding the facilities and hiring medically trained staff. I'm behind this so far. So far, so good. Actual trained nurses? I'm for it. (laughs) Physicians? Absolutely. Changing the name to Battle Creek? Fuck yeah. Expanded facilities. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Uh, While much of Dr. Kellogg's personal medical philosophy was heavily intertwined with his religious beliefs, he diverged notably from the Whites on many points. In addition to rebranding the Battle Creek Sanitarium, he changed the mission of the facility from a spiritual healing center to a sort of high-end medical clinic slash health spa, one that was extremely attracted to the various illuminaries and elites of 19th century America and became the in-place for the rich and famous to rest and recuperate. It's basically the Mayo Clinic, except you're not allowed to jerk off. Wait, can you jerk off at the Mayo Clinic? I assume they can't stop you. As long, I mean, (laughs) as long as they don't catch you, I guess. They don't agree, but like, they don't monitor the toilets. (laughs) Ma'am, you're making the MRI blurry. You need to stop. (laughs) (laughs) Desist. It's going to ruin the results. (laughs) 
Notable guests to the sanitarium include Amelia Earhart, Thomas Edison, Henry Ford, Mary Todd Lincoln, J.C. Penney, John D. Rockefeller Jr., Eleanor Roosevelt, George Bernard Shaw, William Howard Taft, and Sojourner Truth. I'm kind of... I'm not good enough at history to have a good grasp of the fact that these people were all contemporaries and lived in the same area. Right? Um, (laughs) Just the fact that, like, Sojourner Truth, John Rockefeller Jr., and George Bernard Shaw could have all been, like, lounging on the poolside together eating, like, gross granola wafers, like, is very odd. I'm about to make a joke that's going to significantly age me in the ears of any of our listeners who are under the age of 22, but that just sounds like the lyrics to the the sequel to the ultimate showdown of Ultimate Destiny. (laughs) (laughs) It's just a list of famous people that I kind of want to fight each other. Yeah, I just, like, who would win? William Howard Taft or Mary Todd Lincoln? My money is on Mary Todd Lincoln. She will fuck up your shit. She will mess you up. (laughs) She saw a man shot, like, three inches from her face. She's hardened. (laughs) She's got nothing to lose. Also, does Sojourner Truth pick the best name? She did, yes. It will never be topped. Her original name? It's not even worth- I'm not even gonna tell you what it is. It was boring. Sojourner Truth is better. Parents, step up your game. Giving yourself the surname Truth is pretty much the most badass thing you can do. If Sojourner Truth lived in this day and age, she would have to drop an album. She would have to. (laughs) It's too badass of a name not to put on, like, the cover of something. Truth isn't even my middle name. It's just straight up my last name. You will address me as such. That's- Mr. Truth to you. Or in this case, Miss Truth. I don't actually know what I would call her. Madam Truth? Madam Truth. Truth. Kellogg's more business-focused, mainstream approach to running the sanitarium led to frictions with the whites, who viewed this turn towards worldly concerns as a form of corruption. Ah, I love what people in the past found immoral. Making money, courting the rich... Business strategy. Off with your head. Is that a cash register? Heathens. <laughs> Satan has come upon this institution. <laughs> it's like when you find out the people used to think that the post office was immoral because women could write to men. Just, just, fast. <laughs> the history is fascinating. Just the idea of women having unmonitored correspondence was a devastation. <laughs> and now if you actively like the post office, we'll call you a nerd and stuff you in a locker. <laughs> I don't know if this is the best time to bring this up, but I actually have a book beside me, which is called Neither Snow Nor Rain, A History of the United States Post Office. Get in the locker. (laughs) Get in there. I got it from the library. Get. (laughs) I'm going to hire a sixth grader to stuff you into a public school locker. That is fair. That is extremely fair. Like the Red Wedding, they're going to whisper in your ear like Janelle sends her regards and then you get shoved in there. Kellogg eventually wound up on the wrong side of a schism within the Adventist church when his views on the omnipresence of God were taken as a deeply heretical form of pantheism. That is, the belief that God is everything rather than the belief that God is everywhere. Kellogg was disfellowshipped in 1907 because apparently Protestants are too good for the word excommunicated. Ouch. And this totally, definitely had nothing to do with jealousy over the success of the sanitarium and Kellogg's resistance to outside influence on its running and refusal to put the sanitarium's profits towards outside Adventist programs. If this happened today, Kellogg would have an Instagram account with the bio, Haters Make Me Famous. 
<laughs> with an eight. <laughs> yeah, and if you're a godless atheist and you understood exactly none of that, congratulations. <laughs> Your life is less complicated than it needs to be. Treatment at the sand was the very height of modernity. Upon arrival, clients would be given a comprehensive physical assessment and thorough diagnostic interview. They would then be assigned their very own personalized treatment regimen, including massages, baths, daily exercise, often set to music, a modified diet plan, and health education. Kellogg believed, as we know today, that many health problems were the result of unhealthy living habits, and the best way to help people live healthier lives is to educate them and train them to live in better, more natural ways, what he called biological living, rather than trying to fix health problems after the fact with questionable tonics and medicines. It's like paleo, but you don't have to eat weird bagels. And in my experience, 90% of people who tell you that you don't need medicine and you should just fix all your problems with wheat bran, cold showers, and hot yoga... Oh, are nuts. Are, uh, they're scientifically illiterate quacks who choose medical treatments based on tarot cards and think that the moon is a hologram. However, Kellogg had something of a point. A normal middle-class American breakfast at the time was huge, greasy, salty, and most of all, meat-heavy. I assume it was just lard eaten out of a jar with a spoon. I just like the fact that we gripe about our diets today when, I mean, what the hell do you think people in the past were eating? It wasn't just green salads and vegetables. It was mostly oh, lard. We have a population with some of the highest access to fresh food of any time. In human existence. <laughs> Before pasteurization, we weren't just, like, drinking straight, all-natural milk right from the cow. We were just getting E. coli. People were just drinking milk that had, like, been shipped into the city unrefrigerated and half-rotten. That's why everybody's favorite childhood game back in the day was, Do I get to live to see 15? <laughs> There was a time and place where urban people weren't aware that milk wasn't supposed to be chunky. Mmm. There's a reason they didn't baptize you right away. <laughs> yeah. They wanted to see if you, were, if you were gonna live. <laughs> mm. Dear God. No, I used to work in a grain elevator, and I actually had somebody bemoaning, you know, how unnatural and terrible our diets were, and how much healthier they ate back in the day when this grain elevator was operating. As I was standing next to a piece of machinery that literally coated grain with formaldehyde oh. to preserve it. I was like, oh, okay, yes, in the past, very healthy, much awareness mm. of, of diseases. This is the formaldehyde bucket. <laughs> they just breathed this before they put it on their food. It was that or ergot poisoning, so, you know. Yeah. Pick your hallucinations. Like, do you want to die of cancer, or do you want to die of being lynched after people think you're a witch when you start hallucinating? What a time to be alive. While certainly less than affordable for many Americans, beef steak was an increasingly normal breakfast staple. Not infrequently accompanied by pie. Mmm. Steak and- steak and pie. That's- Generally followed by a glass of brandy and a cigar. <laughs> <laughs> Cigars were a food group back then. That was a normal part of breakfast. Honestly, the only reason your ancestors were thinner than you is because they had nicotine coursing through their veins all day, so nobody was ever hungry. Nicotine and meth. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps unsurprisingly, such a diet led to an epidemic of digestive problems. Mm. This will bung you up. This will make you triple constipated. <laughs> I can't 
can't eat the first hour after I get up because it unsettles my tummy. <laughs> I can't imagine just starting the moment off with a s- slab of rare steak and a cigar. <laughs> I <laughs> I can't even be in the same room as a cigar under ideal circumstances. It's too gross. I puke. Like, one time someone smoked a g- cigar and then hugged me and I nearly vomited down his back. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bit sensitive. Hey, honey, it's 6.30 a.m. Here's a Cuban and a deep-fried piece of steak and apple pie. Yeah, it's just just for afters. (laughs) They didn't specify if they were fruit pie. They might have been meat pie. Oh, dear God. (laughs) Just, here's some sweet meats and a pie. I'm Acadian, so like one-third of my culture is meat pie, but there's not at seven in the morning. Canadian food is notoriously very heavy, though to those people who know it exists. Like, there's a lot of gravy and fried bread involved, <laughs> but we have that for dinner. <laughs> Poutine is a drunk food. It's a, it's a, yeah, it's two a.m. It's what you eat at three in the morning. And I hate myself. And I am going to, you know. If you lived in a household where poutine was routinely served for breakfast, you'd need a sign-up sheet for the toilet. If you ate that every day, you would devastate your intestines. They would- your, your small intestine would sue, your your large intestine would just die. <laughs> the only reason that New Yorkers survive their constant diet of bagels and pizza is because we're literally all too busy to die. We have shit to do. If New Yorkers didn't have to walk 26,000 steps a day and do 87 flights of stairs to get where they're going, you would need flatbeds to move any of us. Yeah, you'd be you'd be all be 800 pounds and like roughly spherical. None of our <laughs> foods are good for you. Oh, look, it's no. our classic food, cheesecake, which you will eat with some pizza, and then for breakfast you're going to have a bagel with 8 inches of cream cheese. <laughs> yeah, this is a diet where if you're not being kept thin by stress and walking through 300 flights of stairs a day y- you would you would just literally collapse of a heart attack at 30 it's <laughs> <laughs> the plan yeah that's 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 the actual way that janelle is going to pay off her student loan i was gonna just... i was about to call it my student loan repayment plan i'm sad that the fact that i'm in so much debt is such a central part of my identity it's a trope <laughs> <laughs> god damn it you're getting predictable janelle oh no you're, you're just you're just gonna walk out of like Columbia with a grad- graduation cap and you're just going to collapse on the stairs of the University of a Heart Attack. <laughs> <laughs> Hooray! That's that's the real reason. You're just going to be eating pizza every day. You're just like, you know, I'm only you're only in New York once and like I need I need to die before my my student loans start gaining interest. <laughs> <laughs> every time I meet a law student who lives in Manhattan, I feel sad on the inside. How do you have the strength to go on? Do you just not think about it? Did your parents just intentionally not teach you how numbers work so you'd never know how much debt you were in? Let him be ignorant, Sam. <laughs> it's better this then way. Then just, like, slowly take the math book away. <laughs> <laughs> Additionally, most of the tonics advertised to treat such indigestive problems were themselves highly dubious. Patent medicines of unproven efficacy and even outright scams. Such remedies almost went entirely unregulated up until the early 20th century and were often ineffective at best and actively poisonous at worst. Actual doctors at the time were little, little better, often straight up prescribing alcohol and tobacco to their patients. Remember back when cigarettes were a treatment for asthma? 
Amazing. Mm. <laughs> Delightful. That being said, treatment available at the San went a bit further than just a bowl of oatmeal and a brisk morning jog. This was something of a transitional time for medicine where a lot of doctors were just throwing therapies at the wall and seeing what stuck. Even so, Kellogg was a bit more experimental in his ideas than most, with a certain cavalier attitude towards yet unproven medical therapies. While many of his ideas proved to be true, others seemed, seemed downright bizarre to a modern eye. Popular therapies at the San involved phototherapy, uh, which often included sitting in a specially made cabinet filled with light bulbs. Electrotherapy, which included a strange cage-like contraption intended to relax patients by administering static electricity. And vibrational therapy, which included a device intended to passively stimulate patients' muscles to simulate exercise. And a vibrating chair intended st to stimulate the lower organs and address indigestion. You know what I find relaxing? Being locked in a tiny cage that electrocutes me. Yeah. Nothing drifts me off to a gentle night's sleep mm, like that. So relaxing. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I don't know if the vibrating chair worked or not, but it was definitely a vibrating chair. <laughs> <laughs> you know what You know what really relaxes me? Just finding, like, a shag carpet and, like, power walking across it as fast as possible. <laughs> and it's just so relaxing. <laughs> My favorite thing. You know what relaxes me? Just taking, just taking like a, a like an inflated balloon and rubbing it across my head. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, we have really shitty Ikea stools because none of us have any money. And also because mm. my roommate weighs about as much as the average ring of keys. And so she thought <laughs> that a stool from Ikea with a maximum weight capacity of 180 pounds was sufficient for everyday use. Oh, boy. In a household where one of us runs a podcast called Fat French and Fabulous. <laughs> so anytime anybody who is not an American girl doll brought to life sits on one of these stools, it just, it kind it does vibrate beneath you. <clears throat> Except the the end result is not relaxing. It's more just your life flashing before your eyes. Yeah, like it's it's hard to it's hard to trust a stool where like you don't feel fully safe unless you have both of your feet on the ground and slightly braced. So far, <laughs> one roommate has gone straight through one. I haven't managed to do so just and it yet. Wasn't even you. It wasn't even me. <laughs> Hooray! Yay! <laughs> For not crushing a stool beneath my girth. Now, see, our only saving grace is that men very rarely come over to the apartment who you know men routinely weigh mm. more than 180 pounds because one mm. uh bianca pees on men i don't fully understand <laughs> what that's about but two janelle's suitors are not allowed into the apartment anybody that i find attractive is not allowed yeah. through the doorway they're not allowed into the apartment they're not allowed on airplanes and they're not allowed to work for the government <laughs> it should honestly be a clause in like most tenant insurance contracts yeah any man in which Janelle has expressed a romantic interest just should be on the no-fly Absolutely list. not. You come into this house, this insurance is void. I genuinely caught myself wondering the other day if I would have better luck dating if I just wandered around a graveyard. And then I had to go <laughs> home. No, Janelle. We're getting a little too desperate here. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> you know, if if your roommate had gone to the San, she might have encountered this particular fun, fun treatment. Underweight patients at the San were made to eat as many as 26 meals a day and lay motionless in bed covered with sandbags between those meals. What the hell? That's not a medical treatment. That's how you make foie gras. Yeah. <laughs> like, this, this, is, this is how the French, you know, medically treat geese. This is how you forcibly fatten up a geese. This yeah. is how you make pate. This is not how you treat a human being. 
What are the sandbags for? Do those help with weight gain? Apparently they were supposed to help the body absorb nutrients? or to, like, Is that why keep... I'm so fat? Is it all the sand that I spoon in my sleep? Yeah, it's, it's, just, damn it's it. just, you need to stop sleeping buried up to your neck in sand. Ah, and I thought that was helping the whole time. God I, damn I think, it. I think it might have been, like, they might have been intending to, like, to make them, like, sit, sit still so they would absorb nutrients and, like, not burn calories? I don't even know the exact mechanism that was intended by this. <laughs> not even not even rolling over in your sleep. You need every precious calorie from every one of those 26 yeah. meals that you ate. Apparently, like orderlies would brush their teeth. I don't I don't even understand like how do you have 26 distinct meals? How is that yeah. just not an all-day feeding at that point? Like one bleeds into the other at that point. I don't know what the rules are. I feel like at this point you're just filling a trough and leaving them to it. Like that's all that's all it's just like a bunch of like skinny people in a like eating out of a trough surrounded by orderlies just chanting at them. Eat, 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 eat. I feel like at a certain point that just crosses the line and becomes porn. I don't know who's into it, but it feels like something. Yeah, it just feels like something I shouldn't be looking at. It feels like the sort of thing that some women are paid a lot to do and tape themselves online. That's what that sounds like. That does sound like a porn genre. There's a porn genre entirely dedicated to just women stepping on food. So, you know, internet's a scary place. Although, a lot of a lot of them, I'm, I always wonder, I'm like, would it be weirder if it was non-sexual? <laughs> yeah, no, that's worse, actually. That's, that's actually worse. If you're not like, getting sexual benefit from it and you're just chanting, eat, 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 <laughs> yeah, eat, like, you you're skinny just, like, fucks. Force-feeding, like, skinny people, like, if you're just making skinny people eat 26 meals a day out of a trough, it's weirder if you're not at least getting off on it. <laughs> Like this I, is... I want you to at least like it. This is this is a strange conversation. <laughs> uh, another popular therapy was known as the water cure. Interestingly, the term water cure means something very different now than it did in Kellogg's day. Oh yes, it refers somewhat ironically to a form of torture where a victim is force-fed massive amounts of water. At the time, however, it referred to a form of what we might term hydrotherapy. Uh, but it also involved drinking me- a medically unsound amount of water every day, sometimes up to 40 or 50 glasses. Yeah, hydrotherapy, people tend to think of like those you weird- get water poisoning. You will. People tend to think of those like weird water massage tubes that you could find at West Edmonton Mall where like- Jets of water massage your back. No, it's actually just like fetch the hose. Like that's all that hydrotherapy <laughs> yeah. is. Yeah. It often yeah. involved just chaining mentally ill people to a wall and then literally hosing Turning them. Turning the hose on them. Yeah, all of this was intended to purify the body. Mm. Although it definitely gave more than a few people like actual water poisoning. Um water toxicity is a real thing. Kellogg thought that much of this was rather extreme, instead viewing thirst as a reliable natural indicator. He nonetheless recommended setting aside at least one day a week to drink a glass of water every hour on the hour to flush the system, as it were. 24 glasses of water a day. I actually don't know if this was 24 hours of water a day or just when you were awake. It didn't specify. Either way, you've got to block out a second day to pee. Oh my gosh, yes. Like, I wouldn't be able to sleep that night. And like, 
that's about the third glass of water I've had in about three hours. I start feeling, I feel myself slosh. I, 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 when I, when I jump up and down, I can hear the ocean. <laughs> the idea that you need to drink water constantly or risk just shriveling up like a fucking California raisin is basically invented by Gatorade. I'm not even kidding. Like, literally, drink when you're thirsty. You're, you're, you will not accidentally die. <laughs> most of, most of the water you need every day, you get through food. You will be fine. If you're thirsty, have some water. Otherwise, don't worry about it. <laughs> right, unless you are, like, actively denying yourself hydration to, I don't know, punish yourself for your impure thoughts about Queen Elizabeth II, uh, you won't accidentally kill yourself with dehydration. That's very difficult to do. Yeah, like, I have, like, I, I actually have several times nearly puked because I was so dehydrated. But, like, I am a fragile being who, like, is frequently unaware of, like, signals my body is telling me. Unless you have a specific problem where, like, you just don't notice when you're hungry, tired, and thirsty, you'll be fine. <laughs> I was gonna say, I feel like even with that in mind, hydration is not your biggest problem. No. Generally speaking, most people are perfectly well hydrated. I mean you specifically. No matter how dehydrated oh, yeah. you are... You always have bigger problems. Yeah, usually the fact that I haven't eaten 24 hours. That's usually it. Although, I actually have been eating a lot in these past 24 hours. I was listening to this podcast on the Donner Party, and I was just super hungry. I've I eaten, to like, check eight on sandwiches today. I don't understand. I'm gonna text your roommate, and I swear to God, if he doesn't text me back in 24 hours, I am calling the police. I'm implying that you're going to eat your roommate. Right. He's a bit scrawny. I hate that that's your only... <laughs> <laughs> I'm also fond of him, if that helps. He's <laughs> just... If he was meatier, I'd think about it, but... Mm. I just... I just don't think he'd be a satisfying snack. <laughs> At this point... Might as well hold off. <laughs> Uh, Kellogg was also a fan of colonic irrigation, which involved a specialized and a machine buzz. And, and a buzz. buzz attached to a tube inserted into the rectum. The machine would pump several gallons of water into the intestines, though notably not all the water would be inside the body at one time. Uh, or you'd pop you'd like a pop. fucking water balloon. <laughs> you'd be like the blueberry girl from like, Willy Wonka. From Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. <laughs> Your intestines would literally explode. Um, the patient would then be given a pint of yogurt. Half for the patient to eat. Oh, and the no. other half shot up no. their ass. To replace a healthy gut flora. <laughs> You've completely defeated the point of cleaning your colon if you're just going to put unrefrigerated dairy products up there. Nothing like a squeaky clean intestine to then immediately violate with high-powered, high-velocity yogurt. No. Oh my and god, I, I don't no. suspect there was fruit in it either. Fruit-bottom <laughs> yogurt Plain, enema. sugarless yogurt right up the ass. It's probably better. I honestly don't want anybody... I don't want yogurt up my ass, but I especially don't want mangled strawberries mm, suspended in yogurt up, up my ass. No. <laughs> no, that's the worst joke. Yeah. Of all the jokes that exist, that's the worst one. May God have mercy on your soul. 
he's not taking your my dark, call. shriveled soul. <laughs> I mean, it would be ha- easier for the half you had to eat, and harder for the half that got shot up your ass. <laughs> right? Do they divide it in front of you? Do they just give you a container of yogurt and tell you to eat till they say stop, and then <laughs> take it from you? I don't. I don't know which is worse. They're just measuring it out in two bowls: one for your mouth, one for your butthole, <laughs> one for your mouth. There's no non-horrifying way to do this. Another one for your colon. Incidentally, there is no scientific evidence for any health benefits of colonic irrigation and numerous risks. Mm. Which is why I don't want one Groupon. (laughs) Stop asking me. What are you Googling that people are just offering you colonic irrigation everywhere you go? Groupon has my, has my, has my, my, my... My, my email address and they're very certain that one, I live in Toronto and two, I want so much water up my butt. <laughs> they think they just think, they think that I just based on like my past purchase history that I have a, a passion for enemas and I don't know what I did to give them that impression but I am sorry. <laughs> I mean, I... I Google a lot of, like, mental health-related stuff as, like, a mental health grad student, and now all of my ads are just like, don't do it, think of your family. (laughs) (laughs) See, in in comparison, like, Google apparently thinks that I am a 60-year-old Lithuanian woman (laughs) with a passion for Uggs, home renovation, and high-end sports cars. So... Yeah, I got a weird search history, and every once in a while, like, I'm just, like, cruising on the internet, and I just get, like, a sidebar panel asking me if if, if I'm willing to donate money today to help a fellow Jew, and I'm like, I don't, I don't know who Google thinks I am. (laughs) (laughs) I don't even get ads, it's just pleading for me not to kill myself. (laughs) Yeah, you've got existential despair, I've got, like, an identity crisis. (laughs) What a pair we make. Yeah, I, I just get, I get, I, like, I speak several languages, which I think is part of what's really confusing them. So, like, I just get, I just get Folgers commercials in, like, Mandarin all the time, and I'm just like, I don't understand a thing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, later in his life, Kellogg became an early American adopter of radium therapy, which will absolutely melt your face off at high enough rates of exposure. We actually Yay. have an entire episode on why that it was a terrible idea. Uh, it's called The Radium Girls, and you can look it up in our back catalog. We won't be getting into it here. Mmm, <laughs> you just dissolve from the inside out. Go listen to the episode, not while you're eating. Yeah, it, this is a different kind of crack snapple pop. Uh, <laughs> oh, don't snap, you crack, do it. Pop. You made a cereal joke. No. <laughs> <laughs> this time it's your bones. Uh, Even the idea that Kellogg is most famous for, cornflakes, came from a deeply weird place, and at best, questionable medical theories. See, while the diet at the sanitarium was wholly vegetarian for entirely sensible therapeutic reasons, it was also intentionally as bland as possible. 
No salt, no sugar, no spice, absolutely nothing to excite the senses. Because as Janelle talked about earlier, Kellogg thought that flavorful, spicy food would do more than stimulate the palate. It would undoubtedly stimulate the sexual organs of the body as well. This would lead inevitably to moral licentiousness and laxity. And worst of all, horror of horrors to the most terrible of, thi- uh, terrible of sins, masturbation. This is why people masturbate uncontrollably at Indian restaurants. It's a well-known thing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Like, no greater abu- aphrodisiac than alu gobi. Mm, we go to Indian food. When we lived in the same city, we went to get Indian food together all the time, and it was just... I could barely look you in the eye afterwards. We were partly there for the food, mostly there for the show. <laughs> just an orgy just of <laughs> self-gratification self-abuse just at every table and this is also why the British never have weird sex parties mm-hmm. because their food is boiled Absolutely. and made out of sadness they boil all the deliciousness and out all of the sin butter chicken <laughs> is an evil temptress beckoning for you it wants you to touch your junk it wants you so badly to tickle your pickle. <laughs> oh, yeah. God. That's right, kids. The inventor of cornflakes' driving goal, his animating fear was that too much animal protein would make you beat your meat. He thought that tangy salad dressing would make you tickle your pickle. Spank the monkey, flick the bean, have a date with Rosie Palm and her five daughters. The man thought that garlic was a beguiling temptress leading the unwary down the path to eternal damnation. If you make one more masturbation joke, I'm going to put bleach as a seasoning on all of my food. <laughs> I don't know, that might give you some weird impulses to, uh, to uh, rough up the suspect. Holy shit, this is why Google keeps telling me not to kill myself. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's because I threatened to eat bleach into a microphone. <laughs> Uh, as you may guess, our boy John Harvey was kind of weird about sex. <laughs> no. Say it ain't so. S- Kellogg took the Adventist religious doctrine of celibacy very seriously in his personal life and was a strong advocate of sexual abstinence, both for religious reasons and as a means for preventing sexually transmitted infections such as syphilis, which was then incurable. He even counseled married patients not to have sex more than once a month, or for non-reproductive purposes. Despite getting married himself in 1879 to editorial assistant Ella Eaton, the marriage was apparently never consummated and the two kept separate bedrooms. In fact, Kellogg took advantage of their honeymoon to work on a book he was writing, possibly one of, one of the ones about how terrible sex is. The Kelloggs never had any biological offspring and all of their 42 children were adopted or fostered, all poor or- orphans, several of whom were black. Because sex is icky. Icky. <laughs> Gross. Disgusting. Uh, <laughs> Ella Eaton Kellogg herself was a very interesting woman, a prolific author and a member of the temperance movement, as well as a suffragette. You can vote. You just can't bone. <laughs> Never that. <laughs> and voting while boning is just right out. Absolutely not. You're... <laughs> <laughs> Whatever you're about to say is going to be horrible. Sorry, I just I just keep thinking that's not what the voting booths are for. It's for privacy. No, God. I'm just imagining what a fun life they must have had, though, right? No sex and no flavored food. It's just tepid games of Scrabble while we eat boiled, unseasoned potatoes. 
dancing to the oldies back before they were oldies, <laughs> having long conversations with Sojourner Truth and never eating anything tasty ever again. One time she accidentally brushed past her husband in the hallway and then they both had to go take a cold hydrotherapy session <laughs> to cool down. That elbow-on-elbow elbow contact, whew. Licentious. Not appropriate <laughs> between a man and a wife. <laughs> we must have a chaste marriage. One time she ate a saltine with real salt and she almost, almost touched his face. <laughs> now, let it not be said that one must have sex to lead a happy life or to have a happy marriage. Honestly, if I had a wife, I would probably have exactly as much sex with her as Kellogg did with his. Uh, but I cannot help but feel that for a person who wasn't interested in having sex, John Harvey Kellogg sure did spend a lot of time thinking about it. Uh, masturbation was a particular point of obsession for Dr. Kellogg, who believed that the practice of the five-fingered shuffle was not only itself a form of moral de degeneration, but also led to any number of physical ailments and societal evils. Among other health complications Kellogg attributed to flogging the bishop, there was dimness of vision, cancer of the womb, urinary diseases, nocturnal emissions, impotence, epilepsy, insanity, mental and physical debility, and death. 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 Ironically, I mean, not, not, this is, this podcast has gone well over the point of no return. I feel like not masturbating makes you more likely to have wet dreams. Yeah. You gotta unload that gun. <laughs> Is I I feel like that might be genuinely the sound you think a penis makes, and I need to tell you that it's not. I mean, it will never be relevant. But uh, <laughs> men do not. If you need, if you get bit by like a snake on the penis, and you need first aid, don't come to me. <laughs> she thinks they make rifle cocking sounds. Yeah, they do you need not. To pull, well, obviously, you need to pull back the hammer. <laughs> oh dear God. <laughs> The screaming will not be from the rattlesnake bite. The screaming will be the fact that you're holding his dick like an Atari joystick. <laughs> Is that not how they work? <laughs> anyway, don't masturbate. It'll give you cancer. They make kind of a rubbery sound if your boyfriend bounces it off the top of your laptop while you're trying to work, but that's only because <laughs> I date terrible people. <laughs> I love that you know that, and I'm glad that I don't. <laughs> I don't love it. Not at all. Save me from myself. Yeah, and keep in mind that the heritability at the time was far from well understood. Reger Mendel had only just published his work on dominant and recessive inherent inheritable traits on peas as of 1866. Also, nobody gave a shit about Gregor Mendel's work until decades later. Decades later, Kellogg thought that many of many of the of the ailments acquired through sinful sexual excess of uh, jerkin the gherkin would be passed on to future generations, leading to wides the widespread decline of civilization and mankind. Now, what's really going to kill civilization is if you ever say jerkin the gherkin ever again. <laughs> Cities will topple, the oceans will boil dry, animals will flee their homes. <laughs> Cats will eat our faces. Actually, he'll do that anyway. But uh, Kellogg was far from alone in these beliefs in the medical community and drew inspiration from many of his contemporaries and predecessors, such as prominent French doctor Joseph-André Réveillé Paris, who once said, although in French, 
Neither the plague, nor war, nor smallpox, nor similar diseases have produced results so disastrous to humanity as the pernicious habit of onanism. Which is jerkin the gherkin. Absolutely. I'm glad you're with me. Oh, God. <laughs> uh... The treatment Kellogg recommended to address the dire consequences of hand-to-gland combat were equally extreme. Oh my god, <laughs> Kellogg concerned... <laughs> I'm so sorry. They're just so good. <laughs> it's all you can think about now, isn't it? <laughs> Masturbation jokes. Not even a yogurt enema can treat the ulcers that you're giving me by the moment. Kellogg counseled parents to closely monitor their children to the point of denying them all privacy, as well as bandaging or tying down their hands and pulling and, and putting their genitals in specially designed cages. Ah, yes. Father-son mm. bonding. Come here, son. <laughs> I'm gonna wrestle your dick into this here cage. <laughs> I, I prefer uh, father-son bondage, thank you very much. Oh my god. No, you don't. No. <laughs> no. Oh my pun. god. Now we're you both know, on nothing, watch lists. Nothing brings the family closer together than tying your son's hand to the bedpost every night and putting his his junk in a specially designed cage so they won't escape. <laughs> Another option for pre- preventing p- children from playing pocket pool was the use of electric shocks. <laughs> Just tase the little fuckers. <laughs> yeah, it's like, you touch yourself again, you're gonna regret it. <laughs> yeah, that's a treatment that we now consider controversial to use on actual prisoners and actual crime suspects. <laughs> yeah, you, you probably shouldn't tase a 14-year-old for putting his hand down his pants. <laughs> I mean... Controversial, I know. Controversial opinion. You probably shouldn't tase children. (laughs) (laughs) Especially especially not for, like, getting sinful erections. Uh, (laughs) In his book, The Lady's Guide in Health and Disease, Kellogg suggested as treatment for nymphomania, cool zitz bath, cool enemas, a spare diet the deliberate application of irritants and blisters to the sensitive areas of sexual organs, and the surgical removal of the clitoris. Oh my god. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Holy shit. Uh, Kellogg's passion for genital, genital mutilation did not begin or end with young ladies, however. Kellogg recommended and indeed performed surgical procedures on children intended to stop them from re- ruining their eyesight by any means necessary. I will spare you most of the details... But Kellogg advocated circumcision without the use of anesthetic or the use of a silver suture sewn into the foreskin as to physically prevent an erection and cause irritation. Kellogg praised burning the penis or clitoris with carbolic acid as an excellent means of allaying abnormal excitement. (laughs) See, when my brothers hit puberty, my mom just bought them a separate computer so they wouldn't get the family computer all crusty, and that's pretty much the only... (laughs) Discussion that was ever had. That was sufficient for everyone else's sanity. Mm, I want to be able to type without thinking about it. So you get your own keyboard. Congratulations. Let me know when this one's too gummy to use. (laughs) Wash your own socks. Part of what led to Kellogg's strong antipathy towards defeating the one-eyed purple people eater was his belief in Lamarckian inheritance. He was also substantially involved in the eugenics movement. 
both of these, those are going to need some unpacking. Eugenics was once the kind of normal intellectual person thing to believe that you wouldn't get you uninvited to birthday parties, and it was particularly popular in the America of Kellogg's day. Eugenics is an ideology that advocates the selective breeding of humanity to improve the genetic stock of mankind. It is heavily associated with pseudoscientific ideas about racial differences, both physical, mental, and moral, as well as anxieties about racial mixing. It's basically animal husbandry for racists. It is it is what your what your aunt does to tiny poodles, but with people. <laughs> the people who advocate for eugenics tend to believe that they should not be on the receiving end of eugenics. Yeah, it's kind of an everyone sucks but me movement. In Kellogg's day, anxieties over new immigrants, East Eastern and Southern European immigrants, and especially European Jews, were at, at, were at a fevered pitch with many believing that these groups would never assimilate or worse, would come to pollute the blood of the existent American population, leading to physical, mental, and moral weakness. How dare uh, they invade shores and bring borscht? <laughs> Wait, hang on, they wouldn't have the Slavic accent. It's very late at night. <laughs> <laughs> little more, A uh, little more Italian there. I can't do an Italian accent without sounding like an actual vampire. So, <laughs> I'm not gonna try. I, as a child, I didn't- I, I want kind some marinara sauce! Ah, ah, ah! Genuinely, I was in a play when I was 13 where I had to play an Italian, but because I grew up in a predominantly Ukrainian area, I'd never actually, like, seen or spoken to or, like, heard of an Italian up until that point, and I didn't know how to distinguish them from Romanians. <laughs> I don't even recall what the play was about, but my father has it on tape. It's just me pretending to be an Italian mobster, except nobody helped me with the accent. So <laughs> the line was like, she has the biggest feet I've ever seen in my life. But because, like, apparently my view of all Italians was the Count from Sesame Street, <laughs> the line comes out, she has the biggest feet I've ever seen in my life. And my dad has shown that to everyone. Everyone. Oh, you'd have If to. you come to my house, my dad will show you my horrible attempt at an Italian accent. I'm almost tempted to go to Nova Scotia just so I can hear it. Mm. When I was a kid, all, the, all that they had on me was that I had an adorable lisp. No, I was in Stomp for six months. There's just an endless font of embarrassing footage. People just kept tricking me into speaking speaking words with a lot of S's in them. That's no. so much worse. No, there's there's video of me dressing like a what a white person thinks the inner city looks like and banging on an oven rack. So, you know, <laughs> that well runs deep. Mm, I bet it aged perfectly. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Kellogg was a founder of the Race Betterment Foundation, Yikes. a eugenics organization. Yikes. He was also <laughs> pro-segregation and anti-interracial marriage. Didn't he have he black children? Yes, he does. He well, adopted several black children. He's a complicated man. Son, I love you. You're the only child I've ever known. I want the best for you. Don't you fucking dare be happy. You stay the fuck <laughs> away from white people. Not us. We love you. We're your family and we love you. But you get the fuck away. He's an interesting human being. It's complicated. He likewise organized three large eugenics conferences, including on one at the Chicago World Fair. No oh, fun. Um, that being said, Kellogg was far from a classic eugenicist. In fact, by the, in terms of his beliefs, he was also a euthanicist. Euthenics being the idea that the way a person lives and behaves changes what they pass down to their children hereditarily. Actually, that is true. Yeah. 
We only figured that out in, like, the early 2000s, but that's, that's, uh... Yeah, we eventually came to the idea, like, oh, yeah, epigenetics. But, like, his idea of it, just like, like, traditional, like, like, ideas about, like, genetic hereditary at the time before people understood genes, before we understood epigenetics, people who had this sort of, like, pseudo-Lamarckian idea of hereditary also had it a bit off. No, no. Uh, so, like, this wasn't in the sense of good parents teaching their children to be good kids, uh, or the idea that, like, oh yeah, like if your if your grandmother like was starved, like you're probably gonna have more trouble like losing weight because it activates certain genes that makes it easier for her children to retain body mass. That's not what we're talking about here. That's too sane. This was the idea that if you lead a moral, healthy life, or an immoral, unhealthy life, then those traits will be passed on biologically to your children. No, epigenetics is actually quite boring. It's normally like, haha, your grandfather smoked and now you are fat. Y- your, your mother was extremely stressed out during, your, during her pregnancy, and now you have an anxiety problem. That's and also you're gay. <laughs> Yeah. That's, Congratulations. That's a separate You're an thing. anxious homosexual. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Mom. Just what I always wanted. <laughs> Don't say it never gave you nothing, kids. Uh, <laughs> Kellogg was right in thinking that environment is an extremely important factor in a child's development, but no, doing tons of push up push ups will not make your children ripped. <laughs> God damn it. Most eugenics proponents thought Kellogg's belief were a bit silly and made fun of him behind his back, but they still took his calls, seeing as he was both famous and very wealthy. Patients who voluntarily submitted to Kellogg's less exotic anti-masturbation aids were often less than resolute in their dedication. An intentionally (laughs) bland, in-season diet free of worldly temptations of sugar and salt would begin to drag, and many clients of the sand would sneak out to the nearby Little Onion restaurant for steak and cigars. Uh, That sounds like a joke, but that wasn't your joke voice. No, that is not my joke voice. (laughs) Uh, They would literally (laughs) sneak off to the Little Red Onion restaurant, and they would help themselves to a, a, a nice porterhouse steak. Uh, in rebuttal, <laughs> Kellogg would order a fine steak himself from a local tavern and show his patients a slide taken from the meat and all the bacteria therein. <laughs> mm. Also, I feel like if I was forced to eat a bland diet of nothing but processed corn, I would masturbate more yeah, just to escape. just to feel alive. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh yeah, I'm still here. <laughs> It's not even sexual anymore. I just want to feel something. <laughs> uh, he used to refer to the the people who snuck off to the Little Red Onion as the Sinners Club, which is very fun. <laughs> Kellogg was likewise always experimenting with different ways of preparing various nuts and cereals to make his healthful vegetarian diet more palatable and encouraging compliance with the diet regimen without resorting to excess spices that might unleash an unholy epidemic of choking the chicken. Uh. <laughs> Is that oregano I see? <laughs> You're making your mother cry. <laughs> Son, we need to talk. Is this garam masala? <laughs> Has your child been experimenting with nutmeg? <laughs> it's the lies that hurt the most. <laughs> <laughs> 
To help him in his, his goal of bland breakfast for a masturbation-free America, Dr. Kellogg created the Sanitas Food Company to sell various vegetarian health food products and enlisted the help of his younger brother, Will Keith Kellogg. W.K. Kellogg, who I shall from this point forth refer to as Billy for absolutely no historically justified reason, <laughs> Billy. Was, Billy, was eight years younger than his older brother, and instead of going off and getting a highfalutin fancy New York education, he had remained in the broom, fa- in the broom business as a salesman and eventually took a fo- t- had taken a four-month business course. Little Billy Kellogg had a good head for financial <laughs> matters and joined the staff of the sanitarium as a combination bookkeeper, cashier, shipping clerk, and administrative assistant a few years after John Harvey Kellogg had become the director to help deal with the added organizational complexity of the newly expanded sanitarium. Finally moving on from the broom business. Yeah, finally moving up in the world to becoming Woo-hoo. your brother's servant. Uh, Part of the attraction of Will Keith as an assistant was that he posed little threat to his older brother's control of the facility, like a more independent older man from outside the family would. This was far from an equal partnership between the brothers. John Harvey Kellogg dominated his younger brother, who carried out the unglamorous end of running the sanitarium and putting up with John Harvey's constant demands. As children, John often teased Billy and pushed him around, a habit that continued into adulthood. Dr. Kellogg Aww. would have... Yeah, can you imagine... Getting bullied by your brother into your 30s? Yeah. And this is... <laughs> no, he got bullied by his older brother into his 40s. This lasted a while. Like... If my brother hadn't cut it out by now, I would have shoved him to the Atlantic Ocean years ago. Dr. Kellogg would have Will Keith Kellogg follow him around taking dictation, including into the bathroom to have all his his all-important bowel movements. And Mm. as he rode his bike around the sanitarium grounds, Billy running alongside to keep up, note in hand. I don't need my brother to take a dump with me. Mm. Or vice versa. I don't need any of that. That is my brother, my younger brother, true story, refuses to close the door when he goes to the bathroom. Has since childhood. Because he feels like it's... Does he feel lonely? Does... Yeah, he's like a, a baby where like he thinks the world isn't real anymore if he can't see it. <laughs> Does he lack object purpose? Yeah, he's like he's like I'm I'm no longer part of the family if the bathroom door is closed and he didn't warn his girlfriend about this when oh, they moved no. in together. So they just moved in together and the first day he's like, "Guess what, honey? I shit with the door open and that's <laughs> That's just my sister-in-law's life. I feel like that's <laughs> something you should disclose at by at least the third month point. I first date, tell me if you are open shitter because I need to leave. <laughs> I, I, I need time to prepare myself and decide whether by the uh, by the end of the date I need to decide whether or not you're worth it. <laughs> Otherwise, I don't I don't know. I'm just I just I I don't need you fumigating our house with toilet water every time you flush. I don't I dated a man who was so vampire-like that my father hung up strands of garlic to keep him out of the house. And I still draw the line at people who shit with the door open. <laughs> it's just, it is, it is a line too far. <laughs> Bianca, stop chewing the wall. No. No, that's my wall. Not your wall. Good girl. She's chewing the wall. I think my chihuahua might be brain damaged. <laughs> <laughs> she, 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 she needs nutrients that only, that only paint and lead can, can, can fully. This is a. Yeah, this is a New York City tenement building from 1912. Please don't wrap your teeth around any part of it. Yeah, I mean, 
you're you're going against the main ethos of this podcast, which is do not eat lead. <laughs> Don't eat lead. If any, if we have taught you nothing else, do not eat lead. Hey, John Harvey Kellogg would agree with us. And Don't eat, eat lead. lead. Don't eat lead and don't masturbate. All right. I'm not that sure that that's our podcast motto, but... (laughs) It is now. Bland food keeps you regular, keeps you from from slapping the serpent. I don't know. Oh, dear God. I'm running out out of euphemisms. But uh, he also had Billy shave him and shine his shoes. That's just fucking with him at this point. He wasn't even getting well paid for this. In 1884, Dr. Kellogg paid his brother $9 a week for his services. Approximately $230 a week in modern terms. (laughs) He has to take notes while in flat-out sprinting. And he's making less money than a barista. He has to watch his brother take a dump every day. <laughs> Probably several times a day, given given Dr. Kellogg's weirdness around enemas. And he's doing it for $9 a week. <laughs> this man, I think, just like gets like numb flashbacks to his brother grunting. <laughs> <laughs> the man eats nothing but yogurt and bran. They're just they're violent. They've probably gotta replace the toilet every three months because like John Kellogg just shits a hole right through it. <laughs> he He's regular to the point where you can set your clock by him. Just, <laughs> at this point, like, just this amount of, like, raw fiber growing through a human being. <laughs> at a certain point, it's no longer healthy. It's a fetish. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I think this would have been less weird if he'd been getting off on it. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it's it's such a Sophie's choice. <laughs> likewise, like if you're if you're offended by him misunderpaying his brother, keep in mind that Dr. Kellogg likewise offered room, board, and no pay at all to first year nurses, as they were lucky enough to have the honor of working with him and ensuring the health of every guest. Uh, yay! Yay! Kellogg himself boasted that he took no salary, but then he was more than well compensated by speaking fees and book royalties. So not the same, dude. No, not even slightly. Uh, Despite living in his brother's shadow, Will Keith was an extremely talented, efficient administrator, keeping the sanitarium's records, running the business, and organizing a staff of over a thousand people. Even with these important, stressful duties, the worst part of Will Keith Kellogg's job was the petty humiliations inflicted by his older brother and being treated as John Harvey's lackey. Uh, the Kellogg brothers spent long hours developing the recipes for products that would be then be sold under the Sanitas Food Company label, including Protose, Nuttose, Bromos, and a sick, thick paste made from ground nuts that the doctor called nut butter. That's kind of fun. Yeah, he actually held the first patent for peanut butter in the United States. That's a fun fact that I'm never, ever going to need to know again. Absolutely not. Uh, and funnily enough, it's better known than the whole surgically removing people's clitorises thing, which I think is wrong. <laughs> you just never know when you're making your legacy. The invention of flaked cereal came as an attempt to create an easily digestible alternative for ill patients with gastrointestinal difficulties. Kellogg thought that baking cereal grains for longer periods at high temperatures would break down the starches and make them easier to digest. The sanitarium thus served double-baked Zweibach biscuits, 
made out of Hold Graham grain, named after Presbyterian minister Sylvester Graham, who inspired many of Kellogg's ideas about bland food and holding the sausage, ho- sausage hostage. Oh yeah, he uh, he was the creator of the graham cracker, which is originally not sweet. It was just bland sadness. Yeah, and, and the graham cracker was invented for exactly the same reason as cornflakes, and it was to keep you keep keep you from hitting the mitten. It was uh Oh dear God, it's getting worse. <laughs> Gotta say though, if if you're faced with a choice between bland cereal and dick staples, choose the cereal. Absolutely. I am I, I will eat as much bland cereal, unsugared and unsalted as you want, if you will not staple my dick together. <laughs> if you will not if you will not sew my purely hypothetical penis shut, I will do whatever you want. <laughs> uh, what I actually what I find most interesting about the term double baked Zwieback biscuits is that it's this funny example of etymology doubling back on itself. Each of those words means baked twice. First in English, then in German, finally in Old French. Oh, it's like chai tea. And biscuits were originally a type of hard bread created to keep over long periods of time, so they were first baked, then dried out in the oven in a twofold process. Eventually, this need to preserve them through drying became less important, and people started eating them soft. Then, after German immigrants introduced their own hard version, that particular style of biscuit was designated by giving it the German name, which just so happens to share exactly the same meaning. That's fun. I'm glad we no longer have to eat triple-breaked rocks anymore to keep weevils out of our food. Yeah, and uh, I, I, I mentioned this just so that Seth doesn't have to remind me of the conversation we had two weeks ago, because we've already discussed this exact thing. <laughs> Seth is our informal research intern, for those of you who are joining us. And by informal, I mean that he does this whether we want him to or not. He's our involuntary research intern. (laughs) He just looks up horrifying facts after the show and then sends them to me while I scream for mercy. (laughs) Uh, Anywho, these hard biscuits, while easy to digest, were quite hard to chew. So they instead ground them into small pieces, making the Kellogg's first cereal which John Harvey called granola. Not only was this not at all similar to modern granola, it actually got him ensued by another doctor who was making a highly similar product he called granola. Kellogg thus switched the name to Granos, which is still being sold today. I like that there was a legal battle over gross, bland chunks of wheat. Yeah, it's it's, it's quite interesting. I'm just like, personally, I think you can have it. You can have that for free. I don't want it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm good. I don't need to patent that one. Like, there's, there's only so many bowel movements I need to have in a day, and, like, there are more pleasant pleasant ways to ensure them. Um, <laughs> now, uh, my favorite would be yogurt enemas. <laughs> no. Just a pint of strawberry right up the ass. I, you need adult supervision at the grocery store from now on. <laughs> now, the Kellogg's figured they could do a mite better than just grinding up what was essentially whole wheat toast. So they, and by they I do mean primarily Billy, they kept working at it. Uh, John Harvey says uh, the idea came to him in a dream, but that's a Ted Ellen White, so let's go with Will Keith's account. Now, a lot of these stories, uh, some of them feature only Will Keith in the kitchen, but a lot of the stories, even most of them, feature all three of the Kellogg's, John Harvey, Ella Eaton, and uh, Will Keith. 
The Kelloggs had been experimenting with rolled-out wheat dough in an attempt to create something analogous to the then-popular shredded wheat making waves in Denver, Colorado. Unfortunately, the dough wasn't cooperating. One day, they were interrupted by John Harvey being called away to another matter. Billy, being a scrupulous frugal fellow, set the dough aside in a container rather than throw it out. When they came back to it quite some time later, it seemed to have gone dry and moldy, but they decided, what the heck, and put it through the roller anyway. Oh! <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm, good. The process of sitting out had dried out the dough, called tempering, evening out the water and air content throughout, so that when it was put through the rollers, it cracked into these little flakes. They later did the same with a roll of corn dough, though I assume that time they didn't let it get moldy. The new cereal flakes were a hit with the patients. I assume they didn't feed the moldy ones to anybody. Uh, To the point that even (laughs) after leaving the sanitarium, they would order them through the mail. Now, while John Harvey's health food philosophy was the driving force behind the creation of flaked cereal, it was young Billiam Keith who saw its business potential. Uh, John Harvey insisted that the cereal be sold exclusively to patients of the San and subscribers to Good Health magazine. Billy, on the other hand, on the logic that more customers meant more money, strongly disagreed. But that I can see why they hired him for the business end. Mm -hmm. I get it now. (laughs) He's like, (laughs) if we have more customers, then we'll have more customers, and they will sharp instincts, kid, (laughs) more money, and eat more food. (laughs) You'll go far, (laughs) Billy. You'll go far. In 1891, failed entrepreneur and indigestion sufferer C.W. Post became a patient at the sanatorium. Uh, He came back several times over the next few years, and and a technician at the laboratory-slash-kitchen reported to Dr. Kellogg that Post had been hanging around watching them them experiment with cereal-based coffee substitutes, which Kellogg saw... Oh, yeah. Which Kellogg saw absolutely no problem with, which, of course infuriated William. (laughs) You know, he's just like, oh yeah, just let him watch. He can do whatever. This is a strange relationship. In 1895, Post created Postum Cereal Co. and launched his first product, Postum Cereal Beverage, followed in 97 with the breakfast cereal Grape Nuts, which was a wild success and made Post a millionaire. They taste like neither grapes nor nuts and they are terrible. Because Postum Cereal is a dumb name, the company later became Post Cereals, then General Foods. Uh, Hmm. John Harvey Kellogg was furious at this blatant theft and called Post up and berated him for it. Post, in retaliation, returned to the sanitarium dressed all in black to puff cigar smoke in Kellogg's face. That's the most metal thing I've heard all day. (laughs) Cereal Wars. Uh, When Kellogg ignored him, Post called him a dog, to which Kellogg responded, Yes, and you know what dogs do to Post, don't you? (laughs) Which is... I bite my thumb at you, sir. The inventor of cornflakes threatening to piss on the inventor of grape nuts. (laughs) (laughs) Just imagine if Shreddies had gotten involved. There would have been a shanking. (laughs) What followed Post's success was a veritable serial boom, with imitators cropping up left and right. The brilliance of the idea being less the healthfulness and digestibility of the flaked cereals, but rather their convenience. In an increasingly industrialized society, where the primary breakfast of the poor was time-intensive oatmeals and gruels, a pre-made meal you could simply pour into a bowl and eat was a revelation. Kellogg, however, had no interest in building a large commercial cereal business. 
Billy came to him and asked again and again to expand the business, pointing to Post's galling exploitation of their idea. But John Harvey refused, in part due to concerns about attracting the disapproval of his medical colleagues. At this point, William Keithian Kellogg had had enough, and at 42 years old, he planned to break away from his brother and strike out on his own. A plan that was- Attaboy, Billy. Attaboy, Billy. It's a bit late, but you grow a spine eventually. (laughs) His plan, however, was delayed when a massive fire devastated the Sands' main building. W.K. decided to stay on for the rebuilding of the sanitarium, but in the meantime began plotting the most dastardly betrayals of all. A way to make his brother's healthy, digestive cornflakes tastier. How dare he? Billy waited until Kellogg was away on a trip to adulter a batch of cereal with the devil's own sexual lubricant, sugar. Leading to an angry confrontation when John Harvey returned. The idea of using sugar as a sexual lubricant just turned me inside out. Um, (laughs) You're welcome. No. Oh my god. Please tell me that's not what you think people do for sex. No, I specifically did it to bother you. (laughs) Oh yeah, just, we've run out of lube, honey, but we've got this Aunt Jemima's. Use the brown sugar. It has, it gives it more of a honey taste. Oh dear god, no. Oh my god. No. 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 Make sure you break the clumps first. (laughs) Not today, Satan. Will Keith was uncowed, and in 1906, he founded the Battle Creek Toasted Corn Flake Company, while his brother continued to sell his own version, as he always had, through the sanitarium. Under Bill Stradamus's steady hand, the Battle Creek Toasted Corn Flake Company became massively profitable, making a million dollars a year by 1910, over $26.5 million in modern terms. Shit. John Harvey was infuriated by the commercialization of his products and what he saw as the use of his name and thus his reputation. As a way of asserting his right to the name Kellogg, John Harvey changed the name of the the Sanitas Food Company to the Kellogg Food Company. Will Keith, in retaliation, renamed his own company to the Kellogg Toasted Flake Cornflake Company and added his signature to the boxes along with a message warning customers to beware of imitators. This is the most pointless, passive-aggressive shit I've ever heard, but continue. Finally, W.K. sued J.H. over the rights to the trademark of Kellogg, and J.H. countersued W.K. in turn, leading to a decade-long court battle which ended with John Harvey changing the name of his company to the Battle Creek Food Company, and thus ending the debate. Regardless, the two rarely spoke thereafter. Billy and his flaky corn became serious competitors to Post with his own skilled use of aggressive advertising expressing Kellogg's cereal not simply as a simple, tasty breakfast, but as the lifestyle choice of ambitious go-getters who don't let a little thing like constipation stop them from grabbing life by the grape nuts. (laughs) Another ad campaign told customers to wink at their local grocer and see what happened. Those who did, instead of getting rightly slapped, were given a free sample of cornflakes. Ah, sexual harassment, the (laughs) ultimate coupon. Now with full rights to the Kellogg name, Billy put it up on a 50-foot billboard in Times Square. This, all not to mention a substantial investment in colorful, attractive packaging, sometimes with even with designs commissioned from Norman Rockwell, as well as the first uh, serial mascots, which are ubiquitous today. That's kind of fun. Yeah. 
That's great. (laughs) You're getting in on the fun. Now, Will Keith Kellogg was not a notably warm man. In fact, there appear to be no extent photos of him smiling or looking anything less than like a depressed bull terrier took a job as an accountant. Because he took a job watching his brother's shit. <laughs> for, he did that for 25 years. The man had, had a hard life. It was his own personal Vietnam. <laughs> just, oh no, every, every single photo of him, he's just looking off into the distance as if he's remembering something traumatic. <laughs> he is. He's remembering what his bro- older brother sounds like when he shits. <laughs> but uh, nonetheless, uh, William Keith was very generous with his newfound wealth. In 1930, he def- he founded the Child Welfare Foundation, later the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, to which he eventually doted- donated $66 million worth of stocks in the Kellogg Company for the betterment of poor and rural children. In comparison, hmm. he only gave a small trust each to his own children believing it would be better for them to make their own way in the world. I'll give you enough money to get the staples out of your dicks, but then you're on your own. <laughs> Again, I shouldn't have let you let you go over to your uncles. I know, Yikes. sorry. Uh, during the Great Depression, which when mass unemployment was devastating whole communities, W.K. directed his managers to rearrange the schedule at the cereal plant to shorter but more numerous shifts, six hours instead of eight, allowing them to hire and employ a greater number of workers and support a greater number of local families through a relatively small reduction in hours for the existing workers. Despite the depression, Billy's business flourished. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's the ultimate revenge. He, he <laughs> deserves it. The ultimate revenge is living well. Especially because John Harvey Kellogg, on the other hand, was hit hard. The sanitarium lost a large percentage of its clientele and fell into debt and then receivership. In 1930, Dr. Kellogg moved to Miami Springs, Florida, where he founded a new, smaller sanitarium and fell into relative obscurity, though he continued to study the causes of disease, becoming one of the first doctors to recognize the impact of high blood pressure on heart disease. Uh, John Harvey's continued eccentricity was something of an embarrassment to Billy, despite not having spoken to him for years, particularly an excise outfit that he wore publicly year-round. Uh, essentially a G-string, which, before you get after me, was oh my the exact God. description used by the ANA documentary I watched. I oh, personally God, no. would have called it a loincloth. <laughs> <laughs> Just like Tarzan intended. <laughs> Billy consulted his lawyers on whether or not it might be possible to sometime, somehow sue his then octogenarian brother into putting on some damn pants, but his lawyers advised against it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. We haven't talked in over a decade, and still you, still you do not cease to torment me, brother. <laughs> See, the only legal battle that I'm ever going to have with my siblings is when my parents die, and we have to fight over who has to take all their shit. <laughs> None of us want it. It's all just... Unused Costco-sized rolls of saran wrap. And the giant fish. <laughs> Computers that they owned in the late 90s. That's None of us want any of it. Absolutely not. You take mom and dad's useless garbage. No, you. <laughs> in our family, we know it's all going to shale. <laughs> Good luck, shale. <laughs> Go get it, girl. We believe in you. Uh, in 1942, <laughs> Billy traveled to Florida to discuss business with John Harvey and found the conversation rambling and confusing. This would be the last time they ever met. Mm. 
1943, on his deathbed at the age of 91, John Harvey wrote a conciliatory letter to his brother, apologizing for years of mistreatment and humiliation. However, Will Keith Kellogg did not read the letter until several years later, on his own deathbed, also at the age of 91. He lost much of his eyesight in later in life, and his staff did not inform him of the letter out of a certain protectiveness towards him. He was distraught that he had not been informed of his brother's change of heart. Aww. Like, in a lot of, like, I, was, I found this very confusing initially, because, like, a lot of the sources I was reading seemed to portray it as in he just had refused to read the letter, but he actually just never knew about it because he'd gone blind. Probably kind of from like all a... that sinful masturbation. <laughs> he knew it! He knew it all along! <laughs> knew it all along! You should have listened, Will! <laughs> should have listened! <laughs> yeah. And that's the brother's Kellogg. Wow, that's mm. a, it's a that's lot. an experience. That's a it's lot. A, that is experience. a lot. <laughs> I think I wrote more Yo- of the, uh, the masturbation euphemisms I didn't get to at the bottom. Don't you fucking dare. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been a very long podcast. Um, all about, with far too many, far too many references to masturbation. But I nonetheless hope you've enjoyed the story behind some of your favorite cereals. And uh, the global conglomerate that shares their name to this day. Like, it, it's kind of funny because, you know, the brother who grew up in his older brother's shadow is now the one we most remember. You know, everyone knows what Will Keith Kellogg's signature looks like. Everyone. Aha! Sometimes forgotten older siblings have their revenge. <laughs> Sometimes. In any case, we hope you've enjoyed this particular episode. We hope that you never hear the term jerk in the gherkin for as long as you live. <laughs> never mind defeating the one-eyed purple people eater. Jesus which... Christ, no. <laughs> uh, I have been Jessica. I have been Janelle. And we have been fat, fat French, French, and, and fabulous. fabulous. Now go off there, kids, and masturbate to your heart's content. Hey everybody, thanks for listening to another episode of Fat, French, and Fabulous. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please consider subscribing or recommending us to a friend. Uh, Please rate and review us. It really helps us a lot. Helps other people find the podcast. If you'd like to follow us in our downtime, you can find me on Twitter at IamNotAlungFish. You can find Janelle at, uh, at, at, at... very bad llama and you can find the two of us at fat french fab or also on facebook at at our page fat french and fabulous hope you have a good evening